Welcome to the Keeping It Israel podcast with Jeff Futers, where Jeff and his guests talk everything Israel as it relates to Christian faith and the church. If you are a Christian and you stand with Israel, you will be encouraged and challenged by this podcast. And if you're not so sure about the whole Israel thing, you need to learn how your faith connects with Israel and why standing with Israel matters. Now here's Jeff with today's guest. Well, welcome to the podcast. My name is Jeff and I'll be your host today. And I'm also the director of First Century Foundations. We have a ministry that helps and supports many ministries in the land of Israel. We'll talk to you a little bit more about that at the end. Um, We are in our fourth and final week of sharing a series of teachings on the I am statements of Jesus and how we can better understand those statements because of uh, the Hebraic roots of our faith and the Jewish context out of which they were spoken. Today, we are looking at Jesus' statement, I am the resurrection and the life. It comes out of the story of Lazarus, and I know that uh, you're going to find this intriguing, and I trust you enjoy the teaching today. So let's listen in. Let's uh, jump in today. I want to talk today about the resurrection and the life. This is a great, great story in the New Testament. Turn back to the book of John. We're still in the book of John, and uh, we have been dealing with these I am statements of Jesus. And uh, I want you to uh, look at John chapter 10, uh, John chapter 11, sorry. I'm, I'm a little behind today, but that's okay. We'll get there. Uh, let me just, first of all, well, before we, we get to the text, yesterday we talked about the Good Shepherd, and I hope that, I hope that you now have a picture in your mind's eye that will never leave you. I, I find that, that picture illustrations and, and, you know, moving pictures, video illustrations are things that, that never leave our brain. And if you can see uh, that picture of the shepherd and understand how important it is to be able to hear the shepherd's voice, then I know that that will be, that'll be like life-changing for you. More than that, though, I hope that you have started to ask the Good Shepherd specifically to speak to you and that you're listening, that you're listening to hear his voice and ready to follow. And that's the key. It's okay to hear. It's okay to listen. It's better to hear, but it's even better when we follow and we do what we know that the Lord is speaking to us to do. And we mentioned at the end of our time yesterday that uh, Jesus had gone then to the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, to, to Hanukkah. And uh, he's there at the feast. Remember, we talked about the Feast of Tabernacles. That's kind of um, mid to late October. The Feast of Dedication is late November into December. It depends uh, on when the Hebrew calendar falls. And so now he's, he has just been at the, the Feast of Dedication. That's kind of where we ended off yesterday when these Jews came to Jesus and they said to him, you know, tell us, are you the one? Are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? Should we look for someone else? And he says, I've been trying to tell you, but you're not listening. You don't believe. I told you, I am the good shepherd. And so here's what's sort of what's occurring there. He is uh, walking along the, the, the portico, Solomon's colonnade outside of the temple. This is the place outside the temple where, where anyone can come. Sometimes it was also referred to as the women's court. Remember, we talked about that the other day. But it wasn't just for women. Anybody could come to that part of the temple in the, in the outer courtyard. 
And he's out there, he's walking along, and that's when these, this group of, of Jews come to him. And it's important for us to understand that when John talks about uh, the Jews who came to Jesus, he wasn't just referring to their nationality, he was actually indicating uh, a, group of, a group of leaders, sort of those who spoke for uh, the rest of, of, the, of the Jews. And so they came asking, are you the one? And it says in John chapter 10 and verse 24, that those who were gathered there, they came, gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And so, as I mentioned, he said, I did tell you, but you're not listening. And then he adds something. If you look just back in the last part of chapter 10, he says in verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Now, this made them go ballistic. They lost it. This is blasphemy of the, of the utmost form. He's not hinting anymore. He has come right out and he has said, I'm the son of God. That's what he was saying. And so it says that at this, they, they tried to seize him. They picked up rocks intending to stone him because of this blasphemous statement that he makes at the temple at the Feast of Dedication. So we find that Jesus is able to get away. The Bible tells us that he goes into the, the region of Perea. And uh, this is a little bit hard for you to see, but I want just to point out exactly where, uh, where they are. So Jerusalem and Bethany are kind of down in this area. So there's Jerusalem right there. And Perea now is over on the east side of the Jordan River. And we understand that, that Jesus escapes there and he goes to the east side of the Jordan River, which by the way today is the modern day kingdom of Jordan, okay? And so he's, he's over in Perea. This was the place where John the Baptist had, had carried out his ministry. And so uh, Jesus was, was you know, well-liked there. People came there to listen to him. It was safe. It was a secure uh, place for him to be able to go and to sort of retreat for a little while. The people welcomed him. Many believed in him while he was there, it says. And it's while he's there that he gets this important message about his friend Lazarus. Lazarus is deathly ill. Time is of the essence. You're needed immediately in, in Bethany. And so there's the problem. The problem is he's needed in Bethany. Where's Bethany? Actually, if I go to the next slide, you can probably see it a little better. So he's here in Perea. Bethany is over here. See how close it is to Jerusalem? About three kilometers between Jerusalem and, Beth and where Bethany was in those days. And so he's going, if he goes back to Bethany, he's going right back into the heart of Danger Central. This is where they are looking for him. It's where they, they have tried to stone him. And so there's a little bit of a, a quandary, a little bit of a dilemma here. And so we get then to the story, and I want you to look at John chapter 11. I'm going to begin to read in verse 17. I won't read the whole thing, but you're familiar with the story, and I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles open so that we can reference back and forth. But beginning at verse 17, it says, On his arrival in Bethany, so there, I ruined it. Now you know that he went. On his arrival in Bethany, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. 
Uh, When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I I know, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So remember, we're talking about the I am statements. I am. God is the I am that I am. Jesus came and he said before Abraham was, I am. And now he's talking about being the resurrection and the life. And so we are are looking together here at this text and we've been looking at three things, right? Context. We've been looking at what's happening in the background. What's, What's the backdrop of the story? Then we've been looking at the clarification. Why is Jesus using this kind of language? What's, what's the significance of what it is that he's saying? And then lastly, we're, we're talking about a call to action. I want to cover those three things again today. Well, here's the context. Lazarus is dead. This is the context of this story. It's the wet blanket over everything else uh, that's happening in Jesus' life and ministry right now. In, in and of itself, it's devastating. The ramifications of, of Lazarus's death are profound. And, and then within this bigger narrative, there are all kinds of little subplots, and we're going to try and draw some truth out of these as well. Stories that need to be understood if we're able to grasp the true implication of Jesus' statement that he is the resurrection and the life. And so keep your Bibles open to John 11. There's a number of pertinent verses that we're going to be reading as we, as we look together to try and gain a better understanding of what Jesus is saying here and, uh, and what comes out of this story. So we go back to Perea just for a moment. You remember the map on the screen? Jesus is over in Perea. He's there enjoying a time of relative safety and security. He's ministering and people are coming to him. Says that many believed in him while he was there. And then all of a sudden, there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a, a kerfuffle, you know, out at the edge of the crowd. There, there's some distraction that's happening. And here's, here's what's going on. Because while he's there in Perea, at some point in time, it says that the sisters, Mary and Martha, who were in Bethany, they sent word. They sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. Now, when you sent word back in those days, uh, you didn't pull out your cell phone and send a text message or, or fire off an email or even, you know, dial a number and, and call to say this is what's happening. When you sent word, how did you send word? Does anybody know? Messenger. Yes. Somebody would have to actually run from Bethany over into Perea to, to take Jesus the message. Any runners in the room? Okay, nobody's admitting it. I started running last year at the age of 51. And um, then I stopped before I turned 52. Uh, I haven't run in a little while, I confess, but I, I am going to get back to it, I promise you. Uh, so so here's, here's what's happened. They have to send a message to Jesus. 
And so uh, I want you to kind of picture the scenario. They can't send a text. They send a runner. And this runner appears at the edge of the crowd. Remember, there's people there. Jesus is ministering to people. And so there's a distraction. There's a little bit of a disturbance. Have you ever been somewhere where there's a whole lot of people? And all of a sudden, it's apparent that something's happening over there. You know, everybody's wondering. I wonder what's happening, you know. And an ambulance pulls up and a police car pulls up. There's, there's distraction. And so over in the, in the side of the crowd, this runner is making his way through. Everybody's wondering what's going on. And, and he finally comes up to Jesus. And I want to focus just here on this messenger for a little bit. We don't know who he was, but we know why he was there. But I want you to just kind of picture this. He, you know, he runs up to Jesus and he's been running for a little while and he's, he's out of breath, right? He's, ah! Uh, uh, Jesus, you're, you're needed immediately. You're needed immediately in, in Bethany. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a problem. Mary and Martha want you urgently to come because, Jesus, your friend Lazarus is sick. He's, he's dying, and he needs you. And the messenger is huffing and puffing, and Jesus is looking at him. And, and I want you to notice Jesus' response in verses 5 and 6. It says this, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. What? He stayed where he was two more days. You know, John, the the writer here, he's quick to convey the fact that this evoked a sentiment in Jesus but it also evoked a reaction. So, so you know, first of all, we say uh, this, this sentiment that's evoked, Jesus loved this family. He had often been a guest in their home. He and his disciples had been the recipients of their gracious hospitality. Their home was a safe haven for him and for his disciples. These were some of his closest friends. Likely, Lazarus was the closest earthly friend of Jesus while he was here on this earth. And Lazarus, Lazarus was deathly ill. That's the sentiment. But notice the reaction. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he rushed right away to his side. No. He stayed where he was two more days. Seriously? Really? It's like, okay, thanks for the update. Give my regards to the family. And that was it. I don't know what you think about that, but I think that people maybe that were there, especially the disciples, they're thinking, what, what's going on? So imagine, imagine the messenger now running all the way back to Bethany. And he gets back to Bethany and it's the same thing. He's dying, he's gasping for breath, he's been running for hours and he gets there and Mary and Martha come rushing out and they say, they say did you find him? Is he, is he with you? They're looking around and they can't see Jesus anywhere and reluctantly the messenger replies, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Anybody ever say that to you? Which one do you want first? I got good news and I got bad news. The good news is I found him. Yes, I found him, but here's the bad news. No, he's not with me. He didn't come. And Mary and Martha, they're confused. They're perplexed. What do you mean? No. What do you mean he didn't come? Why not? Since you left, Lazarus is dead, and, and why didn't he return with you? Did he say anything to you? Did he send a reply at all? And he says, yeah, he did say something. He said that, he said that this sickness will not end in death, and something about it being for God's glory. 
Imagine trying to sort of figure that one out. Mary and Martha are standing there. What, what do you mean? What do you mean it won't end in death? He's dead. How is that going to be for God's glory? And so instead of rushing to their side, it's like Jesus is saying, just wait. Just wait, I'll be along. How often, how often have you faced an urgent crisis or an urgent need in your life and you pray to God expecting Him to answer your prayer? God, I need help. I need help with my marriage. I need help with my health, with my finances, with my future, my children, my faith, my education. You put your own request in there. God, I need help. And you send your prayer request like an urgent email arriving in God's inbox. You know, you flag it, high priority. And it seems like when God receives the message, He puts it in His low priority folder and He waits. And you wait. Has that ever happened to anybody? I think probably it has. As a matter of fact, I've been old enough, I've been old long enough, I've been around long enough to know that it has happened. It's happened to many of you. And so how would you feel if God said, okay, thanks for letting me know. I'll get back to you in a couple days. I'll get back to you in a couple weeks. Maybe I'll get back to you in a couple months, even years. And that must be precisely the emotions that Mary and Martha are feeling in this moment. Can I tell you something? Delay. Delays invariably cause other things to happen. They invariably cause doubts and reservations to flood your mind. Confusion, disappointment, hurt, anger. The enemy loves to use those things in your moments of waiting to discourage you and to to try to dismantle your faith. But don't miss this today. Don't miss this because delays are never meant to break your faith. They are meant to build your faith. They are meant to build your faith and they are opportunities to do that very thing, to build your faith and to build your character. God never issues a delay to break you. It's always to build you. And so we go back to our story because two days later now, two days later, Jesus turns to his disciples there in the region of Perea and he says, okay, guys, I think we're going to uh, pack up and road trip. We're, We're going to Bethany. We're going to Bethany. Now the disciples, they're still a little bit nervous about this. They, they were okay with waiting because Bethany is very close to Jerusalem. Remember we said that's danger territory for Jesus. They're looking for him there and the disciples are thinking, man, uh, we could sort of get caught up in this a little bit. John 11 and verse 8, it says, they say to him, but Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you and yet you're going to go back? And Jesus says, yes, yes, we're going to Bethany. And they're nervous. They're, they're not happy about this. Let's face it. They could end up being collateral damage when the rocks begin to fly. And so they're, you know, they're not as ready to go maybe as Jesus. But Jesus reiterates his need to go back. And here's what he says. Our friend, inclusive of the disciples, not just his friend, our friend, our friend has fallen asleep. Verse 11. Our friend has fallen asleep. Disciples are thinking to, the, to themselves, well, that's good. That's good. If he sleeps, he'll get better. You remember when you were a kid and you got sick? What did your mother used to tell you? Plenty of rest, plenty of fluids, plenty of rest, right? 
drink lots of fluids, get lots of rest. And the disciples are thinking, it's good. If he's, if he's asleep, well, then maybe he'll get better. This is a good thing. They're not just thinking it. They actually say it out loud to Jesus in verse 12. And Jesus, no doubt, is a little bit annoyed by this time at their slowness. They're not understanding what it is he's trying to, to say to them because Lazarus is not sleeping. Lazarus is dead. What? <laughs> Wait a minute. Back up the bus just a little bit. Two days ago, you said this sickness wouldn't end in death. You said that this would be for God's glory. Now you're telling us he's dead? I think maybe that's what the disciples are thinking. What? He's dead? Now, none of them, except Peter maybe, would dare to even voice that thought. We don't see that, that they react really at all here in the Scripture, but this thrusts the disciples into the midst of this, this emotional trauma and this ethical dilemma. Why did Jesus say Lazarus wouldn't die and now he's dead? Why did Jesus delay if he knew that Lazarus might die? Remember, delays invariably cause doubts and reservations to flood your mind, and I think the disciples are going through this very same thing. They're wondering, Jesus, why? why? Why did we wait if you knew Lazarus could die? Why are we now going when Lazarus is already dead? What's happening here? We've all asked those kinds of questions. While most of the disciples are struggling with, with this, this new assignment of going back to Bethany, Thomas actually, surprisingly, Thomas is the one who says, hey, okay, let's go. Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I think this is funny. In the middle of this story, you know, you get Thomas' little outburst. And Thomas is like, yeah, okay, let's do this. We'll go. If we get stoned, so be it. It's as if Thomas didn't flinch. And, and he goes and switches into full commando mode. He says, Jesus, if you're ready for a showdown, then I'm ready too. Let's do this. And... Uh, I don't know if the disciples are all feeling the same thing that Thomas is feeling, but how often do we respond like Thomas? You know, we, we've got lots of bravado, lots of boast, boasting, we're ready to go. Uh, and it's easy to, to say those kind of things when you're seated on the sidelines, but when you actually get into the game, it's a little bit different, right? Actually, when you actually get into the, to the struggle, into the, into, the, into the fray, it's a little bit different sometimes. Thomas is ready to go. He's ready to go. But then we find, you know, later, it's kind of interesting that when Jesus is arrested, Thomas is one of the ones who runs the other direction. And when Jesus rises from the dead, Thomas won't believe unless he actually is able to see and put his hands in his, in his wounds. So they go off to Bethany. Fast forward a couple of days, Jesus arrives in Bethany where his, his uh, reception is awaiting him. And it, it's, it's kind of interesting to see what happens. First up, you know, we get to Mary and Martha. If you go back to your Bibles in verse 20, I'm going to talk about, uh, about um, Mary first. But or here's what it says. In John 11 and 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. And so we, we think about Mary first. Notice the reception that Mary gives to Jesus. She doesn't even come out. She doesn't even come out to greet him. And she, when she hears that he's arrived, she stays in the house. What's going on? Well, to be fair, to be fair, she's probably grieving. She's experiencing so much deep grief and pain. It's so intense and overwhelming. She's unable to emotionally even entertain Jesus. This could have been the reason. Or could it be possible that Mary's grief had been amplified by her disappointment with Jesus in her time of need? He had let her down. You ever disappointed with God? 
Jesus didn't come when she needed him the most. And now that he's arrived, and in her mind, he's arrived late. He's arrived late. He's not on schedule, and so she shuts him out. She doesn't even come out the door. You know, the enemy knows precisely how to fill our hearts and minds with doubt and fear and confusion and uncertainty. It's his specialty. It's his specialty. The serpent in the Garden of Eden raised the question. The very first question way back with Adam and Eve, what did he say? He said, did God really say? Did God really say that you can't eat of the tree? Did he really say that? He's just seeding a little bit of doubt. And then a little bit later on, he says, surely, surely you won't die. You're not going to die. And from that moment and for the rest of history, the biggest question in the universe was asked, can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? You read your whole Bible and you can lay that question as a template over everything you read, over every, every uh, challenge that Israel has, over everything that happens in the early church. Can God be trusted? It's all about whether or not we trust God to do what God says He will do. And so we ask these questions. And, and Mary is asking these questions. Does Jesus really care about me? And the devil is seeding these into her heart. If Jesus cared, why didn't he come? Why didn't he intervene right away? If he cares, if he is all powerful, then why? Why is my brother Lazarus dead? John tells us that Mary didn't go out to see Jesus until her sister told her that Jesus was asking for her. And in John 11 and verse 32, it says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. And she said, Lord, if you had been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And you can translate that a number of ways. It's almost like an accusation, isn't it? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can really, you can see the, how easy it would be for that to be, you didn't come here on time and it's because of you, Jesus, that Lazarus is dead. You can feel the grief, the pain, the lingering questions if you had been here. You know that question why that Chuck talked about last night? The why questions in our lives, they are the quicksand that trap us in despair and that swallow our faith. They, they hold us back. They, they keep us bound. They keep us captive. And it was just an amazing, amazing challenge last night to be able to, to deal with those things out of, out of Chuck's testimony. So that's Mary's response. Now let's look at Martha for just a few minutes and then, and then we'll, we'll get to, uh, to talking about a, a, the clarification here, why Jesus uses this language. Martha says in John 11, 21 and 22, we go back a few verses, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So that's the same thing Mary said. But Martha doesn't stop there. To comfort Jesus, you know, to, or to, to comfort Martha, I should say, Jesus assures her that Lazarus will rise again in verse 23. Because Martha has a little bit more faith. She goes on and she says, but I know, I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. I know that God will give you whatever you ask. 
And so to comfort Martha, Jesus says, well, Lazarus will rise again. And Martha assumed that Jesus was referring to the resurrection of the dead on the last day. And she acknowledges her personal belief that this will happen in keeping with God's plan. Martha says, yeah, I believe that. Lazarus will rise again. I know that he will. But I don't think that's what Jesus was saying here or trying to imply. And here it is. No ambiguity, no delayed promises, no waiting for some future event. The conversation between Martha and Jesus in this moment takes a very intentional turn. Jesus says to her, I am. I am. I am that I am. I am the God who was. I'm the God who is. I am the God who always will be. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives, by, uh, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And here's, here's the crux of the, of the question. Do you believe this? And so now we get to the, the clarification part. Why did Jesus use this resurrection and life language? Why did he call himself the resurrection and the life? You see, Martha believed what God could do. She believed what God could do. Martha had only a small part of the truth. She had only a small part of the truth. She believed in the resurrection as a future occurrence. I know that he will rise again. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus wanted Martha to believe in him now. I am the resurrection and the life. I am. I am right now, today. I am the resurrection and the life, and I'm here for you, and I'm here for your brother. You see, there is no resurrection. There's no life apart from Jesus. These are not two independent thoughts. Resurrection and life are embodied in him. He has the authority and the power over life and over death. This was going to be an amazing foreshadowing of what God was going to do with his only son when he was crucified on Calvary. I am the resurrection and the life. And it sets the stage for why Jesus had delayed his return these two days. Jesus had openly stated that Lazarus' sickness would not end in death, but that it would be for God's glory so that God's Son might be glorified through it. He was up to something. He was up to something. And friend, if you're experiencing a challenge in your life that you don't understand, just consider this today. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus is up to something. Maybe he's up to something in you. And so we remember the context. Lazarus has been dead four days. Mary and Martha are in mourning. The disciples, they're tentative about their being in Bethany. This mob could easily swoop down on them at any moment. The people there, they're gathered to mourn. And those who showed up to see Jesus, they were all filled with these mixed emotions. Jesus is here, but, but he's late. Lazarus is already dead. What's happening? What's happening? And then in verse 37, it says, but some of them said, this, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind, blind man have kept this man from dying? Could not he who opened the eyes of the man born blind have kept this man from dying? Remember, the people knew that Jesus was no less than a powerful prophet sent from God. Amazed, they had been amazed at his miracles and amazed at his authority as he traveled around the area. They weren't accusing Jesus, but they were confused. They were perplexed. They had, they had seen him open the eyes of a man who was born blind. They knew that this was one of those messianic miracles that we talked about, remember? They knew that it was one of those miracles that the Pharisees themselves and the rabbis and the teachers had put in this column. Here's some things that God can do through anybody. 
Here's some things that God can only do through the Messiah. Four things. Four things. The, the healing of a, a deaf mute. The, uh, uh, the, what did we talk about? The healing of the man born blind. What was the third one? Anybody remember? Healing of a leper and then the, the raising of someone from the dead. Now, I told you that raising someone from the dead was one of the messianic miracles. However, the Pharisees had actually put a little more of a, a little more of a caveat on this one, okay? There's a little more of a caveat on this one, and we'll get to that in just a second. So they're not accusing him. They're, they're wondering why this man who, who has performed these messianic miracles would allow his best friend to die allow his best friend to die. Standing before the sealed tomb, Jesus instructs them to remove the stone that covered the entrance. Martha is quick to point out, Jesus, I don't know. I think this is maybe a bad idea. He's been in there for four days. He, you know, I think the, I used to love the King James Version. Surely he stinketh. <laughs> right? Isn't that what it said in the King James? She's like, there's going to be a bad smell. I'm, this is not a good idea. But there's more at stake. The tension in the air is pal palpable. Most of them knew that Jesus had already done something that, that their rabbis and teachers had said were impossible for anyone but the Messiah. And at this point in the narrative, Jesus had already performed three of the four messianic miracles, which according to the teachings of the rabbis, no one else could perform except for him, except for the true Messiah. Only one remained to raise someone from the dead. But here's the caveat. You see, when the, when the teachers, the rabbis, put raising someone from the dead in the messianic miracle category, they said, they said, okay, but it can't be on the first day after he's dead, and it can't be on the second day after he's dead, and it can't be on the third day after he's dead. But if someone raises someone else from the dead, on the fourth day or later after death, that person will be the Messiah. And, and again, these were their rules. They're the ones that decided this is how it should be, okay? You say, well, why? That seems really rather odd. Well, because Jewish tradition, uh, they believed that in the first few days after death, that God could empower somebody to, to pray and that God's power would raise them through the dead for that person for the first three days. And here's why. Because they believed, and I don't, I don't know how they came to this conclusion, but they believed, uh, and this is a quote from, uh, from Tyndale's commentary, they believed that the spirit of the departed was thought to hover around the body for three days in the hope of a resuscitation. And when it saw the change in the color of the face, when the spirit of the body saw the change in the color of the face, then it departed. And so it was determined that that happened after the third day. All right? This is what they believed. And so the raising of Lazarus after four days then would be clearly seen as a manifestation of the glory of God. It would be clearly seen as a true messianic miracle. And so Jesus is standing outside the tomb and he prays to the Father. And the text says to us, he didn't have to pray. He didn't need to pray, but he prayed, prayed for the benefit of those who were standing around, that they would hear him talking to his Father. And then when he finished his prayer, he said three simple words, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. Notice Jesus didn't pray in the name of the Father 
come out. He did not pray in the name of the Spirit, come out. Jesus simply said, Lazarus, come out, because the one who is the resurrection and the life does not need to pray in any other name. Jesus has, as a full member of the Godhead, the Trinity, holds all authority and power over death and over hell and over the grave, and he simply commanded Lazarus, come forth, come out. And John says, the dead man came out. The dead man came out. We can't even begin to imagine the sheer exhilaration that's, that's happening. And you've got people, I'm sure, cheering and they're excited. And, and Mary and Martha, they just can't believe what's happening. And we would think, you know, people are so astonished that Jesus, you know, had to give them instructions to remove the grave clothes. They were all like, this is amazing. And poor Lazarus is there struggling with all the stuff that's wrapped around him. And he's, Jesus is like, for, for Pete's sake, you know, get him out of those grave clothes. Help him. Right? Not only had, had Jesus restored Lazarus to Martha and Mary, Jesus had categorically in this moment proven that he alone is the true Messiah. Not, nobody, not one person, not even the rabbis could discredit this miracle in particular that he had performed. They tried with the man born blind. But with this one, there was no trying. There was no doubting what had occurred. And so you would think that this would be cause for jubilant celebration, wouldn't you? Well, not everyone was thrilled. This was actually, if you read on in the text, this was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. A meeting was called of the Sanhedrin and the teachers and the Pharisees, uh, the teachers of the law, not to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. You would think that they'd get together officially and say, okay, well, we can't argue with this anymore. Let's just say he's the Messiah and we'll move on. No, that's not what the meeting was about. The meeting was about trying to silence him. And it says that from that day on, chapter 11 and verse 53, from that day on, they plotted to take his life, forcing Jesus to go underground. As a matter of fact, because so many people began believing in Jesus as a result of Lazarus being raised from the dead, they also decided, we'll, we'll kill Lazarus as well. Look at John chapter 12, uh, verses 9 and 10. A large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Jealousy is so insidious that it will bring out the worst in our human nature. Rather than celebrating the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah, the religious leaders, fearful that everyone would believe in Jesus and that they in turn would lose their positions, opted for murder. They opted to try and silence them instead of celebrate them. Better that one man die for the whole nation, it says uh, later in John chapter 12, I believe it is. Better that one man die for the whole nation. And so... They, this is their, their plan. One person dies for the nation instead of the whole nation perishing. They felt that Jesus' influence would be so so terrible that it would totally derail the, the Israel, Israeli nation. Let's kill Lazarus so that he can't tell his story. We'll cover up the evidence of a messianic miracle. And so we come to our conclusion today. What's the call to action? What's the call to action? Well, I believe there are a number of important takeaways for our lives. The first one is believe. Jesus said to Martha, do you believe? Do you believe this? We have to believe. It's not merely good enough to know what God can do. 
We must personally choose to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the resurrection and the life. And I don't know how it is when you pray, but when I pray, I, I, I've, I've actually said this in a prayer. God, I know that you're able to do this. I know that you're able to do this. I have no doubt that you can do what it is I'm asking you, whatever it is I'm praying for at that moment. And I pray that you'll be willing to do this. But somewhere in there, I have to believe that it could happen right now. That it could happen right now. Martha said, yeah, I believe. I believe that Lazarus will be raised in the resurrection at the, at the end of, you know, in the, in the last days. Jesus is like, no, Martha, do you believe that I can do this now? Do you believe I can do it right now? And so we need to believe Jesus is the Son of God. He is the resurrection and He is the life. And the second thing we need to do is trust. Remember, delays are never meant to break your faith. These are opportunities to build your faith, to, to bolster your faith, to build your character. And when you're in those moments of waiting, don't ask why, just trust. Just trust that God will get you through to the other end. There's a, there's a, a country song. Don't judge me. But there's a country song, and it's, it's, it's not real theological, but I like the premise. It says, if you're going through hell, just keep on going, and you might get out before the devil even knows you're there. And that's good advice. Just keep on going. Just trust God that he's going to get you through to the other end. Don't, don't listen to all of the lies that the enemy is trying to tell you. Don't listen to all of the doubts and all of the reservations and all of the things that are, that are flooding your mind. When you're going through those things, trust that God has got your back. Remember what I said about, about the Israelites when, when God came and talked to Moses, the burning bush? I've mentioned it a couple times this week. It's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. God said, you know what? I have, I have seen, I have seen the misery of my people, Israel. And I have seen uh, what they're going through. And I have heard their cries for help. And I am concerned and I have come down to rescue them, okay? God sees, he hears, he's concerned. He will get there for you, maybe not in your time. Mary and Martha, they thought Jesus was two days late, four days late, really. He didn't come for two more days, and, and Lazarus had already been dead four days by the time Jesus arrived, by the time he made the trip. But he wasn't late, he was right on time according to God's plan. And we need to remember that sometimes, you know, we say that, we say that uh, God's, God's not always on time, but he's never late. Well, in this case, Jesus was late, but he was right on time. He was right on time to do what it was that God wanted to do. So we need to learn to, we need to believe, we need to learn to trust. And then I think lastly, we need to learn to live courageously. We need to learn to live with no fear of dying. This is a hard one. But we need to learn to live this way with no fear of dying because uh, the Bible promises us. Jesus said in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I not have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go 
If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Are you looking forward to that day, to the day when you can be in the presence of the Father, in the presence of Jesus? We've talked about it this week. It's coming soon. And tomorrow we're going to talk about that a little bit more in the morning about about some of the signs that we need to see and we need to watch for. Philippians 1 and verse 21 says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Do you believe this? You know, if if Jesus was standing here telling you that, He would also probably add, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And then Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave Himself for me. And so we come again to Jesus' statement and He says, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Sorry, I thought you all fell asleep on me there for a second. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast today. And I hope that that teaching on Jesus' statement, I am the resurrection and the life, was encouraging for you. I hope that it challenges you to believe and to trust and to live in a courageous way uh, in your faith. We are so appreciative that you tune in week after week. And we want to just say thank you for that, but also challenge you to consider supporting our ministry. First Century Foundations is a ministry that supports over 70 different Christian ministries in the land of Israel, ministries that are doing amazing work through humanitarian aid, supporting Holocaust survivors, um, congregations that are growing and reaching out to the community, just so many wonderful things that are happening. So if you're interested, if you would like to support this podcast and support the ministry in so doing, then you can go to our website, firstcenturyfoundations.com. That's firstcenturyfoundations with an S dot com forward slash donate. And uh, you can go on there, whether you're from Canada or the U.S., you can be receipted for your charitable gift. And we would just be so, so grateful to have you support us in that way. Thanks for tuning in again today. And remember, as Christians, we stand with Israel. Israel.